Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, good morning again. It's always a joy to have you guys join us. I want to extend a special greeting to you guys from Pastor Ron and Annette. They're here this weekend, obviously. And um, Ron and Annette are taking some time to tour the campus and visit with some of our leaders and make disciples along the way. And so if you do get a chance to bump into them, be sure to say hello. Also, be sure to congratulate Ron. It's his birthday this weekend. I think he's turning the big three five, and so it's pretty exciting. And uh, this weekend, we're also going to be beginning our study in the book of Ephesians entitled Empowered for Life. We'll be moving through the book of Ephesians over the next about 20 weeks or so. And I'm really excited about what God's going to be doing during that time. So if you can, you can open your Bibles here to Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Um, as you do that, however, I do want to take a note to uh, thank you, many of you personally, from both my wife and Paxton and I, uh, for a lot of the love and the generosity and the care you guys have been showing to us recently. Some of you may know that my wife, Courtney, went into the hospital about three weeks ago due to complications with the pregnancy. Everything is fine. She's fine. The kids are fine. Everybody's thriving. Um, but she is on bed rest in the hospital, and she will be there for an additional nine more weeks um, and so our twin boys are born in early July, God willing, and we'll have healthy, vibrant, thriving children. So I want to say thank you. Many of you guys have been giving us meals. If you're missing Tupperware, chances are it's in my house, but I have no idea whose it is anymore. So give me a call if you want to try to track that down. Um, so we've been, we've been very blessed. This is truly a place of blessing, and I just want to say thank you. We, we have been very well taken care of. Let's pray and get into our text. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have adopted us and your love has redeemed us and we are your sons and daughters. Help us, God, to be thankful on account of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna examine the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians. And we're going to do so with two goals in mind. The goals are these. The first is to understand the blessings we've received in Christ Jesus. And once we've understood them, the second goal is to praise God for those blessings. So step one is understanding. Step two is worship. Step one is thinking. Step two is action. And this is actually how the book of Ephesians is broken down. There are two neat sections within the book of Ephesians, each of three chapters each. And so if you look at Ephesians 1 through 3, what happens in these passages is almost entirely doctrine or teaching. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the application of that teaching. So 1 through 3 is all theory. 4 through 6 is all practice. 1 through 3 is Paul telling us, here's what I want you to know. And 4 through 6 is Paul telling us, in light of that, here's what I want you to do. And it's very important. Some of us are extremely pragmatic and practical. We want to jump straight to chapter 4, try to get into the how-to of life. I'm telling you, you can't do it until you understand the reasons why we function and behave as Christians. And so I want to encourage you over the next several weeks to really allow the Holy Spirit through Scripture to challenge the way that you think so that it influences how you behave, and influences, most importantly, how you worship. That's the connections that we're trying to draw here. So we're going to spend some time uh, here today looking at the first part of chapter 1. Paul begins his letter to the church at Ephesus with these words. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite in him all things, things in heaven and things on earth. I'm going to stop right there because some of you may be completely lost already, and that's totally normal. You can tell already we're in a whole different style of literature than we were in the Gospel of John. Ephesians is a majestic book, and it deals with some extremely important themes and concepts, which we'll go back to, and we'll try to break down and make them comprehensible. So if you're feeling a little bit lost or like, what in the world just happened, take heart. You won't, you're not the only one, and we're going to try to do our best to make sure it makes sense by the end of it all. Let's finish up 11 through 14. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And I think some context here will be helpful, so a word about Paul. If you were here last week, you learned that the apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians from a jail cell in Rome. So it's worth kind of tracing the steps backwards to figure out how he got there. The man we know today is the Apostle Paul was actually born in Tarsus, which is a city in modern-day southern Turkey, but chances are he was probably raised in what is now in Jerusalem. This was a man who had a powerful work ethic. He was a tent maker by trade, and so he knew how to work with his hands, but he also had an incredible intellect and a passion for the Old Testament scriptures. And in that Old Testament scripture, he could not compute how he interpreted those scriptures with what people were now saying about this person of Jesus of Nazareth, who they say is the Messiah, the Messiah who has come to be chosen by God to save and redeem the people. Could not be, that man died on a cross. He could not be the fulfillment of what I'm hoping for. And so as this new cult, as he saw it, began to get developed in Jerusalem of people who were glorifying Jesus as being somehow alive and the fulfillment of everything the Bible was talking about, Saul said absolutely not. And he was so passionate about his beliefs that he actually went around and he persecuted the very people who were believing in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8, we read that Saul went from house to house ravaging the church, dragging people out of their homes and throwing them into prison. This is the very same man that wrote more books of the New Testament than anybody else. So how do you get from Christian murderer to Christian missionary? Everything changed for Saul when he was on a business trip, actually. He and a bunch of his toughs were on horseback, and they're driving north to Damascus to go crack some skulls together and haul people off to prison. In that moment, boom, 
out of heaven comes this powerful blinding light, knocks Saul off of his horse. A voice comes out of heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In this moment, Saul has an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And everything about his priority systems and his beliefs gets radically reoriented. He now sees Jesus Christ as being the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament prophets were pointing to. And he spends the rest of his life commissioned to take this gospel that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And he's going to spread that news all over the known world. More than anybody else before or since, Paul dedicated his life to expanding the gospel everywhere he could go. He started in Jerusalem and Antioch and he started going west into Turkey, into Greece. Eventually, he gets as far west as Rome, potentially as far west as Spain in 60 AD when you could travel on horse or foot. This guy covered ground because he was living his life for one purpose only, to glorify Jesus with everything that he did. And so when he writes now back to the church that he had planted in Ephesus, it's about 30 years after that Damascus Road experience. And Saul knows because he's gone from Saul to Paul, from murderer to missionary, the only way you cross that gap is through grace. And he now has peace with God. And when he writes and he blesses the believers and saints at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's a man who's speaking from authority. He's experienced it and now he's passing it on to other people. And I pray in your life you are experiencing grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But the rest of the passage, verses three through 14, in the original language is actually one enormous sentence. And that's part of the reason why it feels like it's just, it's so thick. Paul gets so caught up in what he's trying to communicate that just semicolons and periods go straight out the window. It's just one big run-on sentence. And different translations will break that up differently so we can read it a little bit easier. But what Paul is trying to communicate throughout that entire passage It are the spiritual blessings that belong to those who are in Christ Jesus. He lists many of them, but I'm going to try to package them into two kind of interrelated containers of adoption and inheritance. Adoption and inheritance are these two packages that we're going to try now to unpack. So I want you to look now at verses 3 through 6. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I wish we could put a period on that and go home. That right there is awesome. What have you been blessed with? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Yes. But he goes on. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, sometimes it's often asked, maybe you've had this question asked of you, how did you find Jesus? But biblically speaking, the phraseology is a little bit reversed. It'd be more appropriate to say, how did Jesus find you? Right? Because Paul here, and the rest of the Bible is in accordance with that, that those who are outside of Christ, to borrow language from Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes them as being dead in their trespasses and sins, and by nature children of wrath. Now, I used to live next to a cemetery for a couple of years, and I kept a close watch. You know what I found out? Dead people don't do much. (laughs) They certainly don't come back to life. 
So if you're alive in Christ today, you can rest assured that God did that to you. He excavated your grave. He brought you back to life. But that last phrase is kind of a curious one. We were by nature children of wrath. What that means is, is that if you are outside of Christ, you are underneath the wrath or punishment or judgment of God. And this is not a very popular idea. You're trying to tell me, if you think about it from a particular point of view, if you were to say, Christians, you're, you're supposed to tell me that you're not closed-minded, but you're honestly going to stand there and tell me that because I don't believe in Jesus, I'm somehow underneath God's wrath. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. But let's try to unpack it and see how this works. If you go back to the essence of God's character or his nature, the word that's used most often within Scripture to define God is the word holy. God is holy. Uh, holiness has the idea at the root of it to be cut off or separated from that which is common. So remember that story we were talking about earlier where Moses is interacting with this burning bush and God speaks to him out of the burning bush and he says, Moses, take the shoes off of your feet because the ground on which you're standing is, is holy. How? Well, it's because it had been separated from everything else around it and dedicated unto God. Therefore, it's holy. So using that definition, a bunch of different things within Scripture are described as holy. You've got a holy nation, a holy temple, holy men, holy women. Many things can be holy if they're separated from that which is common and dedicated unto God. But wait a minute. What could you separate from God that would make him holy? Nothing. And that's exactly the point. Everything about God is fundamentally separate from everything that is not God. Did you follow? God is separate. He's in a class unto himself. God is the definition. God is everything else is so far beneath God. He is exalted. No one compares. No one comes even close. That's what it means to be holy. God is self-defined as being holy. He's the standard against which everything else is met. So this comes into play when you begin to consider the situation of those who are outside of Christ in this world. Genesis chapter 3 indicates, and I think the rest of human history is one massive object lesson, that humanity is fundamentally broken in its sinfulness. We're not doing that good of a job left to our own devices. I think all of the ills and the horrors of this world are simply evidence of the fact that we're in rebellion against our Creator, and when in creation is rebels against its creator, goes against the blueprint that God has established, we suffer. God is holy. We are not. But you might object, I don't care about any of that. Compared to most people, the Lindsay Lohans and the Joseph Stalins and the Adolf Hitlers of the world, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not abusing drugs, I'm not murdering people, I'm not cheating on my taxes, I'm actually a pretty decent person to compare to everybody else that I know around me. Well, what have you just done? You've taken the, the standard of judgment away from a holy God and onto other people. You may be more blind to your own weaknesses than you think you are. But sin is not simply not doing bad things. It's not just not doing bad things. There's a pastor in New York City, Timothy Keller. He writes, I think this is pretty helpful. He says, according to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things, 
but the making of good things into ultimate things. There is one ultimate thing in the universe, God, a holy God. Everything else is derivative. Everything else doesn't even compare. But when we take good things like sex and money and success and ambition and athletics and we elevate them to ultimate things, pretending that they alone are God and we actually structure our lives to worship them, ignoring the God of the universe, we're functional atheists, or we simply prefer to keep him something like a genie in the bottle, referring to him only in times of deep distress, pretending that he isn't actually all-consuming and above us all. We've taken good things and we've made them into ultimate things, and the Bible says that's sin. Because we have failed to value, listen closely, your affections matter. Your affections matter. What you're most affectionate for, what you're most passionate for, is an indication of what you value the most. And when we place our affections in things other than God himself, we are taking what is ultimate and highest in the universe and saying no. Something, the creator doesn't matter, what he's created. You see, we've got it all backwards. And here's the big problem. Our priorities are skewed. And so on one hand, we have, as the prophet Jeremiah describes us, our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's the condition of everyone who is outside of Christ. And another prophet would go on to describe God as being of purer eyes than to see evil, and he cannot look at wrong. So here's the big problem in the universe today. The biggest gap that exists is between God's holiness and our sinfulness. You know what's amazing to me? That God as creator is completely within his rights to do as he pleases There's a neat expression within scripture that says, he is the potter and we are the clay. I took a pottery class in high school. Maybe you did too. If you ever try to throw a pot on a wheel, it's tough. And you'll probably go through probably a hundred lumps of clay before you get anything worthwhile. Well, if you throw away something that's not working, and I submit to you that we're not working, the clay has no right to say to the potter, no, don't. He is creator, we are creation. God is within his rights to do as he pleased, but you know what he chooses to do in that freedom? Do you know what he chooses to do? He chooses to make that space between his holiness, our sinfulness, his divinity, our depravity, and he closes that gap through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the name for that is grace. Grace is the only thing that connects heaven and earth. Grace is the only thing that can get us to God and God back down to us. Because God is a holy God. He cannot simply wipe sin underneath a cosmic rug, pretend it didn't exist, and say, just joking, why don't you all come? Doesn't matter what you've done. No, you see, God is a just judge and his character and his reputation is on the line. So he cannot simply just say, just joking, why don't everybody have a good time? No, no. God deals with sin, and you cannot get to God until your sin problem has been dealt with. And this is the beautiful thing about it, is that God lovingly took the initiative to close the gap because of sin that existed between you and him. The answer is the gospel. The gospel is simply that God takes the loving initiative to close that gap between you and him. I want to show you back now in Ephesians 1. The best part about all of this is that God did this intentionally. It says, God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and, blame, holy and blameless before him. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's holy. Now what? What do we have? We should be what? Holy. God has it. Now we do too. What just happened? 
I thought we were desperately sick. I thought we were depraved. I thought we were going to hell. You were until God stepped into your situation. And how did he give us this holiness? It's Jesus Christ, uniquely done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is what I said before. The gospel is the good news that God lovingly took action to close that gap between our sinfulness and his holiness. And he did it uniquely and specifically through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is why it's so important that Christ is the only way you get to heaven. God chose one way to do it. Here's what he did. He sent his son to this earth to die on our behalf because every sin must have a consequence. God needed to judge sin. And rather than judging it in your life, he presents to you this opportunity. My son died on the cross, the perfect sinless sacrifice, so that you could have his righteousness and he would take your sin, pay for it, bury it, put it to death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 shows us this. He says, watch the pronouns. For our sake, he, being God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin. Even though Jesus was sinless, and didn't have to die for his own sin. He took it upon himself to do it for us. So that, purpose clause, in him, Christ Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Yes! Do you know why I can tell you that God is always happy to see you? Because he thinks you're righteous. He has no beef with you. Your sin issues, the things that are keep you feeling like you're so full of guilt and shame. Do you know what God sees? He sees you with the same love, affection, and admiration that he does for his own son, Jesus Christ. Because when you believe in Jesus, the Bible says that we have this transaction. Here's the scandal of the cross. What I love about God. He makes this proposal, a business deal, if you will. Here are the terms. Accept them, take them, or leave them. The terms are these. If you give your son believing in, if you give your sin to my son Jesus Christ so that he can atone for it with his sacrifice and put it to death, then in return I will give you his righteousness, his holiness. You've traded rot and corruption and death for new life and hope and love. That's the essence of the gospel. And it becomes a free gift that God extends to everyone who would believe in the terms and say, I will humble myself enough to say, I need that in my life. That's why the Bible says it is by grace through faith you have been saved. God's grace acting to close the gap between sinfulness and holiness and is brought about in our life through faith. Friends, that's the offer that's available to you today. God is saying, I want you to be a part of my family. Those that have this are now in Christ, and the Bible says we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. We're part of his family. He chose us, not because he had to or he was in any way restrained. He said in his freedom, said, I want you to be part of my family. I want you to be a part of my family. That's what it means to be adopted into God's family. It's through his grace. This is what verses seven through 10 explain. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What's God's will for your life? According to this verse, God's will for your life is to lavish grace upon you so much that the gap between your sinfulness and his holiness is filled with grace. You now become part of his family and you're united with him in Jesus Christ. It all comes back to Jesus. God's will for your life is to give you so much grace that you now become a part of his family. We serve a good God. Did you notice that word in there, though, that we have redemption through his blood? The word redemption literally means to buy back from a slave owner. So if you were bought from a slave owner, who's the slave owner? Sin. Romans chapter 6 says those that are outside of Christ are slaves to sin. And God says, I don't want that for my kids. So I will buy you back, and the purchase price will be the blood of my son. He loves you that much that he would go and he would find you. He would excavate your grave, kaboom, bring you back to life through grace so that you could live fully, thankfully, as an adopted son and daughter of God. The gospel is the good news that God took the initiative. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. But you know what else is really neat about this? What do kids get from their parents? An inheritance. For now God's kids, it means that we have an inheritance coming. That's what Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 says. Not only do we have, uh, excuse me, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what's the inheritance and how do we know we have it? We know we have it because if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we have heard the truth of the gospel... We have believed now as a son or daughter and we have been given an inheritance and we know that's true because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit has been given as a guarantee or a down payment of that inheritance. If you think about it in that terms, if you go and you put, um, you use the example maybe of layaway. If you go to pennies, you buy a sofa but you don't have all the money for it, but you want the sale price, you can put it on layaway, right? And so you give them a little bit of money down, and so that way they'll keep it in the back for you when you finally come up with the rest of the coin, you can go get your sofa. I guess technically it still belongs to pennies, but the analogy is gonna break down here pretty quickly anyway. <laughs> the idea is, is that God has given you the Holy Spirit, and in this case, the Holy Spirit is given to us as, he's many things, and we'll talk about them in just a second, but specifically here within this case, he's given to you as a way for you to know what you have now and can look forward to what you have in the future. So it's an issue of scale and timing. What do I mean by scale? What the Holy Spirit is in your life is the indwelling presence of God himself. 
A few minutes ago, you were dead in your trespasses and sin and a child of wrath. Now, God himself is actually dwelling within you because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that means you are a holy temple. God's holiness has been given to you. God dwells within you through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Cool. What's happened next? Well, give it enough time, eventually you will go and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And your faith will be made sight. And the God that you love now without seeing, you will see face to face. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that will happen. Because if God is in you now, he will certainly be in you later. He's the guarantee. You've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, what else does the Holy Spirit do? If he's the indwelling God within us, the Bible also says in John, if you remember from our study in John, that the Holy Spirit's work is to convict the world of sin. So the conscience that you have within us is oftentimes the voice of the Holy Spirit. Christians still sin. We're holy, we're saints, but we're still working out our salvation. This is where the Holy Spirit is so important. So important. Don't squelch the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. Heed it. Welcome it. He's a good God that keeps you on his path, and you need that. So cultivate a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Tune the spiritual radio in your heart to hear his frequency. Allow his voice to be able to speak into you. And what will happen eventually, as you begin to develop this relationship with the Holy Spirit, you'll find subtly that your reactions are different. Where you used to get angry, you might now have more peace. Where you used to be bitter, you might now have reconciliation because God is always working out for good. And you won't have to try hard to be good anymore. It'll come naturally because who you are on the inside begins to get expressed now as the Holy Spirit works through your outside. Don't try to go the other way. Don't try to ask your hands to do what's right. Get what's right in your heart and your hands will follow and your words will follow and your thoughts will follow. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to redeem that which is within. So not only does he convict the world of sin, he also exists to glorify Jesus. Everything's going back to praise to Jesus, praise to Jesus, praise to Jesus. The cross itself is all praise to Jesus. Your salvation is praise to Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit in your life if you want to glorify Jesus. You can't do it without it. And here's the best thing about this. We're gonna draw from Peter, the apostle Peter. He's a good friend of Paul's. He writes to his church in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 4, and he uses three words to describe this inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. He says, it is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. None of these things describe your retirement plan. So choose where you're going to invest. By all means, have a retirement plan, but make sure, make sure, make sure you're investing in that which is undefiled, imperishable, and unfading, because that will truly last. It's the smart move to commit everything you have to Jesus Christ. You get better return on your investment that way. Trust me. Trust me. This inheritance that we have is given to us in the Holy Spirit that's resident within us is the guarantee that one day, as David said in Psalm 23, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I wanna encourage you in this coming week, develop that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and allow what God has done for you through the gospel to always resound back to him in thankfulness, gratitude. Ask God to make gratitude the defining characteristic of your life. 
This is how this will end. It doesn't end with us. I told you earlier that God is ultimate, not us. So that means that everything that God is doing is eventually gonna come back and praise to him. I wanna show you how it works out because Paul snuck three phrases into this passage that I wanna point out to you and see about how it's all gonna end up praising Jesus in the end. If you look at verse six, it's all about worship. Paul defines why God has done what he's done for us and it's all about worship. In verse six, it says, we have received the blessing of being adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, quote, to the praise of his glorious grace. God did that so that we might praise his glorious grace. And in verses 11 and 12, when it says that we as sons and daughters have now been given an inheritance, God did that to the praise of his glory. And when he gives us the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14, he does that to the praise of his glory. It's all about worship. Worship is the one thing that'll last forever. Evangelism won't. Service won't. Prayer won't. Worship. Worship lasts forever. So start doing it now. Because everything God has done in your life is to get you just to say, thank you, Jesus. If you can make that a habit in your life of just coming back to God and saying, thank you. Before we close, I want to make sure that if there's anybody here that has heard the gospel, that God has taken the initiative to lovingly close that barrier that existed between you and him because of sin, that's been done through the person and work of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to accept it today as a free gift not working hard, not trying to get yourself cleaned up before you do, but receiving it as a free gift of grace that God has done on our behalf. And so if you could, could you close your eyes, bow your head with us. I'm gonna lead us in a prayer. You don't have to pray out loud. God knows your thoughts. He is near to you. And if you could, when we're done with this prayer, if you've received Jesus Christ and the gospel today, could you just raise your hand and look at me? I'd love to be able to connect with you. And so, Lord Jesus, I believe in the work that you did on the cross. Grant unto me your holiness and forgive me of my sin. I want to have unity and relationship with the Father. My life is yours. I believe you're true. You're the son of God. In your name, amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope. <laughs>